This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Colin Allred, Democratic nominee for Congress in Texas's 32nd. Thanks for coming on and congrats on winning your primary. Oh, thank you so much, Jordan. Yeah, of course. So Colin, this is your first run for elected office. What pushed you to throw your hat in the ring and what makes you qualified for Congress? Well, I'm running here in my home. It's my hometown where I was born and raised. Uh, I was raised here by a single mother who is a public school teacher. Uh, my mom taught for 27 years in Texas public schools, and I went to schools here in this district. Uh, and I, growing up, we, we, we struggled and we didn't have a lot of money because we don't pay our teachers enough. Um, but I had a lot of help from my community, and I think that helped me to uh, become an NFL player, become a civil rights lawyer. Uh, to work for the President of the United States, all those things that I did were kind of built on the foundation of support that I got here. Uh, and I really see you know, running for office as an extension of my civil rights work. Uh, I'm trying to make sure that everybody has a chance to chase their version of the American dream. Uh, I want to make sure that who we are here in North Texas is being represented in Washington. And I think that it's been uh, far too long and we haven't had real representation here. So that's why I got in. Could you tell us a bit more about your background as a civil rights lawyer? Yeah, so my specialty was voting rights, and it's a, a real passion of mine. When I was in law school and looking into, you know, kind of the the arc of what of what you can get involved in with civil rights work, I felt like voting rights was uh, the nexus of so many things. Because if you can vote, you can you know form coalitions, you can defend yourself, you can uh, you know elect candidates who believe in the things you believe in, uh, you can vote for propositions that will. You know, help your community. But if you don't, you have no voice and you're not part of you know, this democratic experiment that we're working on. And so I got into voting rights work and I, I did in 2014 when Wendy Davis ran for governor here in Texas, I was her Dallas-Fort Worth voting rights director. That was a big election for us because it was the first election that we had under our extremely restrictive uh, voter ID law that has been uh, subsequently found to be unconstitutional by multiple courts, including the pretty conservative Fifth Circuit here. Um, and so we, we battled that and we tried to make sure that even with the restrictive laws we have and for voter registration here in Texas, that we could register voters, get people engaged in their democracy. Uh, and then from there, uh, I became a litigator and was involved in a, a major lawsuit challenging some similar laws in Wisconsin, uh, the voter ID laws, restrictions to voter registration, restrictions to polling place locations and hours. Um, and I think we saw in 2016, uh, the result of some of those laws. I think if you, you look at how close that result was, uh, I think you can point to restrictions on the right to vote as a large reason why uh, turnout was down a bit there, especially in some of the communities where it was down. And so to me, voting rights is the protector of all other rights. And it's something that I'm really passionate about. Um, but I've also worked in the Obama administration at the Department of Housing and Urban Development doing fair housing, making sure that people have a roof over their head, they're not being discriminated against when they seek to live somewhere and, and that they can you know, chase their version of the American dream and live where they want to live. So I'd love to dig deeper into the subject of voting rights. The Franchise Project ranks your state 45th out of 50 in terms of ballot access. What are the current voting practices in your state 
And why are they so restrictive? Yeah, well, I, I think there's three fronts to restricting the right to vote. And uh, they begin with restricting the right to get registered, so or the ability to get registered. Uh, and if you talk to voting rights attorneys, will all tell you that the most pernicious restriction on the right to vote is the one for registration. Because if you're not registered, there's nothing we can do for you. Uh, we can't, you know, help you get an ID. We can't, uh, you know, do anything if you're not registered in time to vote. You're, you're just going to be unable to get involved. And so here in Texas, we have a pretty restrictive system uh, in which every county requires you to get deputized by the county uh, to register voters in that county and only in that county. And that deputization only lasts for two years. So you have to go down to the county office that handles your election administration here, uh, get deputized, take a course, get a little a certificate, and then you can go register your neighbors. But when you do that, you have five days to turn in the voter registration form. Otherwise, you'll face potentially uh, criminal penalties. You know, it, that makes it difficult when you're th thinking about going around and just trying to register your neighbors and get them involved. You can't just do that. You have to go and get involved with the local government and, and do a lot of things. I think for some folks, it's kind of daunting. And so that's the first level of it. I think that uh, the second level of courses that we already talked about is voter ID, and that makes it more difficult uh, for folks to vote when they get to the ballot and when they get into the into the voting booth. And so, you know, I we the, the research is very clear on this. In person uh, voter fraud is extremely rare, and it's not something that voter ID would um, basically fix anyway. So, voter ID laws are a, a restriction looking for a problem, uh, and they are. Uh, I think a, a real problem that we have here in our country right now. And so when you prevent somebody from casting their ballot when they're in there, and the third thing is that you dilute their vote uh, through gerrymandering or what we call packing and cracking of districts. So you have you know, politicians drawing districts so that uh, no matter basically what happens, uh, it's hard for them to be uh, to not be reelected. And uh, those three levels, we have all three of those going on here in Texas. The good news is uh, that we have a lot of people who are really engaged and who are working extremely hard uh, to get their community involved, to expand the right to vote, to get more people voting. Uh, I think there's a lot of people here in Texas who realize that we cannot go by any longer being one of the, the worst states in the country in terms of voter turnout. Uh, and they are working really hard to change that. And we have seen uh, increase, increases in turnout. In our primary, for example, we had a great turnout here this March. And I think that we're hoping, of course, to have great turnout this fall. And I think that that activism can overcome uh, some of the obstacles that have been put in place. Colin, so much of this voter suppression is rooted in the Supreme Court's Shelby v. Holder decision 2013, which dismantled the Voting Rights Act quite literally based on the opinion that racism in voting is over. What exactly did the majority opinion do in this case, and what impact has it had? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what the case did. It didn't you know, strike down the Voting Rights Act. It struck down the coverage formula for the Voting Rights Act. And, and what is the coverage formula? Well, the coverage formula was how we determined what states and localities would have to get what we call pre-cleared before they made any changes to their voting laws. And the pre-clearance system uh, basically said that if you've, your state has had a history of uh, discriminating against people for, and, and their right to vote, uh, then you will have to run past the uh, Department of Justice any changes that you're going to make to your voting laws before you actually implement them and so that they can be stopped then. Uh, and so when they struck down that coverage formula, we lost that part of the preclearance uh, regime, as we call it. And so that was a big deal because most of the states that were covered um, were covered under that. And so Texas was no longer covered. And 
the day uh, of the ruling, I remember uh, the attorney general here in Texas said, okay, well, voter ID is back on here in Texas, the day that the Shelby County ruling came down, uh, because they, they knew that, that they then had the right to go ahead and do that, and that I was going to allow them uh, to implement other things that they want to do. And so it was it's a big, big deal. But again, the good news here is that it could actually be fixed pretty easily. Congress could reinstate the coverage formula on a new updated uh, formula that I think could pass uh, muster by the Supreme Court, hopefully uh, one that would also, I think, incorporate places that are discriminating now that maybe haven't in the past. Because uh, one thing that is true is that the previous coverage formula was p- based on things that were in the 60s and 70s uh, and that sometimes didn't capture things that were going on. I mean, Wisconsin, for example, wasn't covered under the previous uh, coverage formula. And we can anybody who's looked at the, the, the voting laws in Wisconsin can tell you that it certainly should have been. And so we need to have a new modern coverage formula that prevents states or localities from discriminating uh, and to make sure that as many people as possible can get involved in our democracy. So even then, in 2013, the conservative Supreme Court majority proved hostile to voting rights. We don't know what's going to happen with Brett Kavanaugh, but it's highly likely that even if he isn't confirmed, Donald Trump will get to solidify a 5-4 majority for the foreseeable future. What can you do in Congress to protect civil rights and liberties, including voting rights, from a Supreme Court who will likely work to dismantle them? Well, that's that's a great question, Jordan. And I think that this is where we need to be looking as people who are interested in this issue, who are interested in uh, expanding our democracy. We need to start going from relying on the courts to be our, our line of defense to affirmatively trying to grant rights and affirmatively pushing to expand uh, the right to vote. And so to me, one of the first things I would do is a slate of changes, beginning with making Election Day a national holiday. Uh, it should be a national holiday. I run into too many people who have a hard time going to go vote because they have work. For a lot of people, it is a financial decision. Uh, and to me, this, there should be no issue here. We should make it a national holiday so folks don't have to make that choice. Uh, the second thing I would love to see us do, of course, as we already mentioned, is restore the coverage formula of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, and I also want to have automatic voter registration. When you turn 18, you should be automatically registered to vote. When I turned 18, I was automatically registered for the selective service so that I could be drafted in, in case of national need. So we can do this. Uh, we just have decided not to as a country. And again, as I said earlier, restrictions on registration are one of the hardest things to overcome. So if we could expand that affirmatively, we could get around some of the restrictions that I think this um, Supreme Court might not be protecting. So Colin, August 21st marked the first day of the nationwide prison strike. I bring that up in regards to voting rights because incarceration has, as I'm sure you know, been one of the most effective methods of voter suppression, particularly of black Americans. Demand number 10 of the prison strike reads, quote, The voting rights of all confined citizens serving prison sentences, pretrial detainees, and so-called, quote-unquote, ex-felons must be counted. Representation is demanded. All voices count. Would you agree with that statement? Well, I'd have to take a look at exactly what they said, but I, I do think that we this is a huge problem, and I think that uh, it, there's multiple level, layers to it. One of them is that we have seen at times that they have used folks who are incarcerated to count as part of the population where they are incarcerated uh, for the purposes of drawing districts instead of where they come from, uh, which can in times uh, you know, disproportionately favor some of the more rural areas in which those 
prisons are located. Uh, so that, that's, that's a problem. And also, of course, when people have served their time and they get out, uh, there are far too many states that don't reinstate the right to vote. And I think that, to me, uh, this is a, a huge, huge problem. It is a vestige of some of the worst parts of our history, and it's something that needs to be changed. When you have uh, served your time, you should uh, be fully granted all of your civil rights again, including uh, the right to vote. And I think that um, you know, far too many states have taken advantage of this kind of loophole in order to uh, restrict the right to vote for millions uh, across this country. And we obviously have to do something about that. So what you're referring to there is prison gerrymandering, which is a huge concern for the upcoming census. But that's not, that's not the only concern for the census. There's also LGBTQ inclusion. There's also asking the question of immigration status, which is, of course, meant to dissuade undocumented people from filling out the census. What are your thoughts on the Trump administration's proposals for the census? And how would you take action to ensure that all Americans are counted in Congress? Well, I, I think the Constitution is actually extremely clear here. It says that every 10 years, all persons shall be counted. It doesn't say citizens. It does not say uh, specify anything about citizenship. And so this is a uh, you know, first for us. And it's a, it's a big, big deal because it will result in undercounting. And how does undercounting affect you and, and, and where you are? Even, you know, even for folks who are citizens and who may think this doesn't affect them, it absolutely will, especially here in Texas, because um, you know, the formulas that we use for government funding, whether it's for building roads and bridges or for education funding or healthcare, are often based on these census results. And if those census results don't reflect what your actual population is, then we will be underfunding ourselves. Because we'll still have the needs and the costs associated with having those people here and having folks here, uh, but we won't have uh, the proper count. And so this is a, a really, really, I think, dangerous idea, and it's going to be challenged in court, and I, I think it is already, uh, and I'm hopeful that this can be reversed because it's a big mistake. So this is part of the Trump administration's war on the undocumented community. I'd actually like to go back in the past to contextualize what's going on all the way back to 1882 when the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed. Now, I bring this up because the Chinese Exclusion Act is what criminalized undocumented status and what put deportation and detention under federal jurisdiction, even though neither practice is mentioned in the Constitution. I'd like to read a quick passage from Justice David Josiah Brewer's dissent in the Fong Yu Ting decision, in which a majority on the Supreme Court validated and expanded the Chinese Exclusion Act. This quote is in regards to the constitutionality of deportation. Quote, It involves first an arrest, a deprival of liberty, and second, a removal from home, from family, from business, from property. It needs no citation of authorities to support the proposition that deportation is punishment. Everyone knows that to be forcibly taken away from home and family and friends and business and property and sent across the ocean to a distant land is punishment and oftentimes the most cruel and severe, end quote. Would you agree with the dissent against the Chinese Exclusion Act? And what would you do in Congress to decriminalize migration and disentangle our immigration system from these white supremacist policies of detention and deportation that define our system to this very day? Well, I, I think that our system is, is clear, clearly broken. As you pointed out, we have a long history uh, of this, and it's something that goes back and has uh, some very you know, ugly roots. But I, I think that We've had consensus in Washington for some time about what needs to be done, uh, but we have not had people who had the political courage uh, to actually do it. 
And to me, this is something that it's very simple. We need to have a comprehensive immigration reform uh, that will provide a pathway to citizenship, but that will also uh, provide what we need to do in order to secure our borders. And I would include in that uh, the soft power that we need to be using to try and uh, help some of the communities in which these folks are, are leaving and fleeing to make sure that there's not so much going on there that they're not able to stay. Uh, we have a responsibility, I think, uh, to find a humane and American solution for this because it's something that uh, we have that has been caused in many ways uh, over years by some of our own policies and we need to find a humane solution to it. And so to me, it begins with a pathway to citizenship. But also, uh, we've, you didn't mention this, but I think the, the issue we have right now with the DREAM Act and with DREAMers to me is one that is really, really crucial to who we are as a people. It's not about documentation. It's not about citizenship. It's about what kind of a country are we and whether or not we're going to allow young people who were brought here uh, through no fault of their own as children uh, to be deported to countries that they don't know, people who are contributing to our economy, who are part of our communities, who this is the only country they ever know, they've ever known. Uh, and I grew up with a lot of these kids, and I was in Dallas Public Schools with them. And, you know, when we, the Pledge of Allegiance every morning, they stood right there with me and, and put their hand over their heart. And I think they love this country, and they want to stay here, and we need to find a solution for them. And to me, this has got to be one of the first, first priorities of the next Congress. So something I hear a lot from DREAMers, undocumented youth, is that they're happy to see Democrats supporting the DREAM Act, even a good portion of Republicans, but they're concerned about their parents and grandparents. They tell me, I, of course, want citizenship, but I don't want citizenship that comes with my mom, my dad, my grandparents being deported. Would you support a pathway to citizenship for the families as well, the undocumented elders who are here with their children and grandchildren? Well, absolutely. And I, I think that this has to be part of the conversation is how are we going to provide this pathway to citizenship? And it needs to be that for folks who are doing the right things, who are working here, who are contributing to our country, uh, we need to provide them with a way uh, they can get, get involved in, and potentially uh, get on the pathway to that, whether that means going to the back of the line, uh, paying back taxes, whatever it might be. Uh, we've seen that we've actually been able to reach some bipartisan consensus on what it should be uh, with the Gang of Eight bill that you probably uh, are aware of, but we just have not had the political courage to get it done. And we have to, because we are not a country, I think, in which we're going to go around uh, rounding up and deporting you know, 11, 12 million people. We're also not a country uh, that wants to have a permanent underclass of folks who can't come out, who are in the shadows, who can be taken advantage of uh, in, in many different ways. That's not who we are. And so we need to find a solution for this. And we also need to find uh, a solution for some of the rhetoric around this, because I think that that's also really important. It's important the way we talk about this and the way we talk about people. And, and we need to understand that immigrants who come here are seeking uh, to join our country, to be a part of our uh, fantastic story that we're building here. Uh, we need to stop demonizing them uh, and stand up when people do, because um, that rhetoric and the way that they've been talked about has created a permission structure that to me is extremely troubling. We've seen the rise of hate groups across the country. We've seen uh, what happens when we pit Americans against each other, when we pit people against each other, uh, and we have to stand up to that. Absolutely. So as I'm sure you know, in 2003, the government removed immigration agencies from the Department of Justice and moved them to the newly founded Department of Homeland Security, which signaled a new treatment of immigrants as an inherent national security threat, where due process, which is the goal of the DOJ, is no longer a concern. Would you support removing immigration agencies from the DHS? Perhaps alternatively, 
placing them again under the DOJ. Well, you know, I would have to look at that. I think that what is needed is congressional oversight, uh, especially right now when we have an administration that I think is hostile in many ways uh, to due process, to the guarantees of our Constitution. And so the only thing we can do uh, while we don't have control of that administration is to provide the oversight that needs to be provided by the co-equal branch of Congress. Uh, there are many, I think, people on both sides of the aisle who think that uh, what this administration has done uh, is getting out of hand, uh, but they are not all standing up. And it doesn't matter what the agency is, and it doesn't matter what the task that's being carried out is. Congress appropriates the money for these things. There, It's being done in the name of the American people. Congress needs to be providing oversight to make sure the American people know what's going on, that our Constitution and our laws are not being violated when it is, when it is going on, uh, and to make sure that our values are being carried out by this administration. And so, to me, this is part of why it's really important that those folks who have not stood up for our country, who have not put uh, their country over their party, uh, that they need to go. So another proposal immigration advocates have made recently, actually for many decades, many, many decades, is ending the ERO or enforcement and removal operations that exist under ICE. The reasoning here is that unless one believes that undocumented status should be criminalized, then there's no real reason to continue implementing the Chinese Exclusion Act practices validated by the Fong Yuting decision that we spoke about earlier. And if undocumented status is not criminalized, then undocumented Americans can A, of course, get citizenship, and B, go through the normal criminal justice system, as would any other American. Is this something you would support? Well, I think all of this is a, it needs to be tackled in a comprehensive way. And so, we can talk about piecemeal parts of it, and I, I think it's important that we do. But I think it, it's all going to come down to a comprehensive reform that will set forward the pathway that we're going to have to follow. And that includes what that pathway to citizenship will be and how we will carry that out. I mean, we are a nation of laws. We have to be able to enforce those laws. But right now, our immigration laws are broken and, have, and need to be fixed. And we need to have a Congress that will work together to find a solution that works for everybody. Uh, and I actually, again, I think that we have and can reach a bipartisan con uh, consensus here if we can get enough folks in there who have the courage to actually stand up for their convictions and do what's right. I'd like to touch on that political courage, um, but just a quick follow-up. Would you be open to defunding the ERO along with uh, legislation that gives a pathway to citizenship? Well, again, I mean, I, I don't know, I can't, I don't want to comment on specific things because I actually really strongly believe that some of these things can be handled in, in as part of a comprehensive reform and that piecemeal solutions won't get the job done because there will always be agencies and there will always be subdivisions of agencies that are going to be responsible for these tasks. What they need is guidance from Congress through the, through the laws and then oversight from the Congress to make sure that it's being carried out in a way that's consistent with our laws. And we haven't had that. And so that's when you get these kind of rogue actions taking place. That's when you get some of these uh, actions that I think are not consistent with our Constitution with due process is when you don't have that and when people are allowed to have far too much leeway in the way things are done. Congress needs to clarify this and needs to step in and do the right thing. And what would you hope to do in Congress to actually hold these abuses accountable, to hold the people who have overseen these inhumane practices accountable, to hold the thousands of reports of sexual abuse in ICE and CBP accountable? Yeah, and that's a great question. I think that, you know, Congress has the ability to hold hearings, to get it to the bottom of whatever's going on, an agency that has subpoena power. Uh, it can 
uh, you know, uncover things that people are trying to cover up, uh, but it requires people in Congress who are willing to do it. And so these are things that should be being discussed by the various oversight committees, whichever one, uh, you know, it has oversight over whichever action we're talking about. They need to be bringing the leaders of that agency in front of them. They need to be, you know, requesting documents. They need to get to the bottom of it. And if laws are broken, uh, then people will absolutely have to be punished. And that's just part, that's also part of us being a nation of laws. And it goes both ways. Uh, but again, I think that this is an issue that has been stuck in the mud for far too long. And it's an issue that I think we can actually do something about, but we have to, to act soon. So you use the term political courage. I think that's very important because a lot of people, especially a lot of people my age, are deeply concerned about the fundamental integrity of politicians. We have seen people of both parties betray us in Congress, betray our priorities, sacrifice our civil rights as if entire demographics are bargaining chips. What can you say to millennials to instill trust in you, to make sure that they know you will still stand up for their civil rights and liberties in Congress? Well, I think it's a great question. I think there's two things that you have to look when somebody runs for office. The first thing is, what did they do before they ran for office? You know, I have been fighting for people's civil rights since long before I thought about seeking public office. This is something that's a passion of mine, and it's not going to go away, certainly when I am in office. Uh, and I, as a civil rights attorney, I have sought to do that, uh, and I'm, I'm going to continue to do that in Congress. The other thing is, how are they conducting themselves in their campaigns to show the way they will lead and the way that they will represent their districts in office? You know, I don't take corporate PAC money, and I made that choice uh, because I wanted to uh, point out, number one, that our campaign finance system is broken and needs to be reformed, but also that I think there's an imbalance in it right now in a power in which too much power is going to too few and which not enough of the voices of the people that should be being represented are being heard because they're being drowned out by enormous amounts of money. And so I think if you look at those indicators, that tells you a lot about how someone will behave in office. And we should require that of people. We should require that. And of course, when they get in office, you have to hold them accountable. And I expect my constituents to hold me accountable. And that's why I've also committed to holding a monthly town hall as part of the town hall project. I've made that commitment to do that. My opponent, Pete Sessions, has not held a town hall, I think, in around a, a year and a half. So he's had one town hall here in Dallas in the entire uh, congressional session that we've been in here. And that's not accountability. And so we need fresh ideas. We need new leadership in Congress. We need to have a new generation of leadership come forward. And that's what I'm part of. And would you also support term limits? Well, you know, I've, I've, I've been asked a lot about term limits. And I think that uh, I understand the underlying idea, which is that these seats in Congress should not be for life. And that we need to be able to, if somebody is not doing their job anymore, uh, remove them from office um, through the normal democratic process. But I also think about people like John Lewis, who I think is doing a fantastic job still in the House of Representatives, who is uh, the heart and soul in many ways of the House. And I don't think that he should be forced out of office because he's been there too long. What I do believe is that we need to, to fix the underlying problems that are making it too hard to remove incumbents who aren't doing the job anymore. That begins by, as, as we talked about earlier, voting rights and ending gerrymandering. It also, I think, as I mentioned just a second ago, includes campaign finance because there are huge benefits to being an incumbent because of the, the amount of money that you can receive from uh, some of these corporate PACs who are interested in, uh, in having your ear and keeping you in office to advocate for them. And these are problems that make it so hard to get rid of people and makes, I think, people lose faith in the system because they think that there's no accountability in our democratic system anymore. Uh, but I actually think that this year is going to be different. I think that there's going to be a number of 
excellent candidates getting elected across the country who are in this for the right reasons, who are public servants first, who believe in their communities. That's certainly how I see myself. I know I believe in North Texas and I believe that we're better than the way we've been represented. And I think that once we get in there, we can enact some of these reforms and carry out the underlying kind of idea behind term limits. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, millennial politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government. And you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. So should you be elected, one of the first and most important decisions you would make is who to support for Speaker of the House. Though we do not necessarily know all your options yet, we do know that Nancy Pelosi will be taking another go at it. Can you imagine supporting Pelosi for House Speaker? You know, I honestly don't know who I'm going to support, and I want to see who is running. And I want to see who's best for North Texas and who's going to, I think, represent our values. I want the first bill, in my opinion, out of the next uh, Democratic House should be an infrastructure bill. I, I want to have a commitment from whoever's running for office that they will work on that. We're growing extremely rapidly here, uh, and we need to have that. Uh, this is something that I think just makes sense if you think about it. I don't think most of the folks who are listening to this know who they're going to vote for in 2020 who's running for president. We know a few people who are running, but we don't know, uh, you know who we're going to vote for until we see what their plans are, see what they have to say about how they're going to lead the country moving forward. I feel the same way about the House leadership. So what other bills and issues would you prioritize at the very beginning of this uh, session of Congress? Well, I think, as I said, infrastructure is, is, I think, should be the first bill out of the, out of the House. Uh, we desperately need it. It's something that I think uh, President Trump has said that he wants to do, although we'll see if, if uh, he's willing to stick to that. I do think that uh, it's a, it would be a huge boon to our economy, good paying jobs, would help us keep up uh, in terms of the, the growth that we're seeing, but also uh, be the right thing to do for the environment and, and in many other ways. Um, we also need to lower health care costs and particularly tackle the cost of prescription drugs. I want to see uh, Medicare have the ability to negotiate prescription drug prices so we can lower those costs. Uh, way too many folks here in my district are struggling with the cost of health care and struggling with the cost of their drugs. And to me, if there's a grandmother down the street who is having to cut her pills in half, or if there's a young person who's not taking all their insulin because they can't afford it, uh, that is a crisis that needs to be addressed right away. And we have a skills gap here in my community. We have uh, jobs that are available that we can't fill. Uh, I'd love to see us invest in job training, uh, in vocational training, apprenticeship programs to make sure that uh, we can fill those jobs with local folks who need those careers and can get out of the kind of the hourly work that they've been doing and get into a good, solid career. 
And I'll say all three of those things that I said are things that at some point or another, President Trump has said he wants to do. And so let's put him to the test and see if he would sign it. And you support Medicare for all, I believe? Well, I support a Medicare buy-in and I, I believe that everybody should have access to the Medicare system. And I think that it's a good way for us to provide a low-cost option uh, for everyone to compete with private insurers. The idea here is to lower costs and we want to have a virtuous cycle of competition like we do in every other area of our economy. And so I think that if we have a low-cost public option provided through the kind of the Medicare provider network, uh, that that will compete with private insurers. People will choose that maybe in some cases over their private insurance company, and then they will have to lower their costs to compete with it. And everybody will benefit. And so we have to expand coverage and lower costs. And I think this is a great first step for us. And so do you believe that it could kind of be a ramp to single payer? Well, I don't know. I think that we're always going to have some version of, of uh, private insurance in this country. I think that what we need to do is make sure that we're covering as many people as possible and lowering costs as much as possible. And so that's always going to be for us a little bit different than it is around the world. And having a robust public option, perhaps with uh, subsidies for folks who can't afford it, who can't get into that system, uh, make sure, making sure that states across the country are expanding Medicaid, that will get us you know, r- really far along the road uh, to having universal coverage. And we need to have that because I always talk to folks that we already have universal coverage in this country. We just do it through our emergency rooms and we do it through a system that I think is cruel and uh, is not as too expensive because when you are seeing somebody in the emergency room, you're seeing them when they're at their worst, when maybe that could have been nipped in the bud earlier in the process. And so I think we have a moral imperative. I think it's an economic imperative. I think it's the right thing to do. I'd like to quickly go back to some subjects we started covering earlier, the nationwide prison strike. I'd like to talk about demand two, which is quote, an immediate end to prison slavery, all persons imprisoned in any place of detention under U.S. jurisdiction must be paid the prevailing wage in their state or territory for their labor. Is this something you would agree? You know, I, I honestly haven't looked into that. I think that uh, prison labor is something that deeply, deeply concerns me. But I'm really concerned with the root issues here, which is that we have a, a mass incarceration crisis. We have far too many people who are in our prisons, nonviolent uh, drug offenders who sh- I think should not be there. Uh, and we have to address some of these issues uh, as part of kind of the source of what we're talking about here. Because we, we as a country, I think, have allowed ourselves to slip into a place that we don't want to be in, in which we are incarcerating a huge percentage of our population. Uh, and it's being done, in many cases, in a way that's not consistent with our values because it is, in, at times, enforced in a discriminatory manner. And so um, I've, I've seen some great proposals from people like Senator Cory Booker, uh, and Senator Rand Paul actually working together to try and address some of these things, to try and end this era of mass incarceration. Uh, and if we can do that, I think that that will also address some of the underlying issues that what we're talking about. Could you tell us a little more about those proposals you support and what other steps you would like to take to end mass incarceration? Well, there's, I mean, there's a, there's a many of them. And I think I, w- I would begin with uh, mandatory minimum sentencing. I think that um, in many cases, this ties the hands of prosecutors, ties the hands of judges who would like to issue uh, a more lenient sentence or find some kind of diversionary uh, way to handle whatever the case is that's in front of them. I worked in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Greenbelt, Maryland, where we you know, did prosecute some of these cases. And I saw how this these mandatory minimum sentences can tie those hands. And it, it really, in my opinion, doesn't make sense. We spent a lot of time and effort working on who we're going to put into the federal judiciary. Uh, we have prosecutors who I think are uh, interested in serving the community and who want to do the right thing. If you force them to send someone away for 10 or 15 years because of the 
type of drug or the amount of drug that, that somebody had on them, that to me it doesn't make sense because sometimes there are extenuating circumstances. And we do need to be investing in diversionary programs. Not everything needs to be handled through our prison system. We're using it as a catch-all for far too many of our society's ills. And so we need to find diversionary programs, especially for people who are struggling with drug addiction. Um, and we need to be investing economically in the communities that are so much impacted by this. Because uh, when you don't have options uh, that can allow you to take care of your family working a 40-hour week, it's clear that sometimes people can turn uh, to other methods of trying to provide for their family. And that's, to me, uh, a predictable result of lack of opportunity. And so we need to be expanding opportunity to try and address those root causes. Uh, mandatory minimums is a big part of it. And there are other aspects of it, too. I, I don't think the federal government should be using private prisons. Um, and we could kind of go down the list. But I, I do believe that it begins with having people who have the right attitude and who have the belief and the, I think, as I said earlier, political courage uh, to try and stand up for what's right. Do you also support eliminating cash bail? Well, ca the cash bail system is not working. And that's, that's very clear. And I think that there are folks who uh, are spending time in prison who should not be because of this. Um, it's more, it's, it's not as much of a federal issue. And it, I think it does need to be resolved. Uh, but it, to me, I, it's, you know, I've looked into this and I, I just, I, I really am frustrated with it. Going back to the Supreme Court, a big concern LGBTQ rights activist have right now is how the conservative Supreme Court majority would affect our community, especially the trans community, which we have seen under extreme attack on a state level. So even if the Supreme Court, say, doesn't strike down Obergefell, it could give the thumbs up to discriminatory laws on a state level. What could you do in Congress to protect the LGBTQ community? Well, I think the first thing we have to do is pass the Equality Act. And what the Equality Act would do is basically just ensure that the Civil Rights Act is applied to LGBTQ individuals and that there's no wiggle room or no confusion about that. Um, you know, it's just we've come a long way, but we have a long way to go. And we've seen uh, that the Supreme Court is not always going to be the bulwark against this. And this is the same as what we talked about with voting rights. We need to be affirmatively granting these rights and protecting them through legislation. And I think the Equality Act uh, is a great first step in doing that. But the other thing also is that we need to be uh, keeping an eye on what's going on with these, this administration and how they're enforcing the laws that we have on the books. When I was at the Department of Housing and Urban Development, one of the rules that we passed was to make sure that any uh, shelter that was receiving federal funds could not discriminate against a transgender individual when they came to that shelter. Uh, and rules like that need to be enforced and make sure that if somebody is out there discriminating, uh, that they uh, are held accountable for it. But that requires an active Department of Justice, that requires an active Congress that's keeping an eye on these things, that requires you know, people who are shining a light on these issues and raising it for the national awareness. Uh, and that's something that, we, that I think we can do in Congress. And lastly, where can folks find you online and how can they support your campaign? Well, thanks so much, Jordan. Yeah, they can go to my website. It's colinallred.com. That's a one L in Colin and two in all red. Uh, and, or they can follow me on Twitter at colinallredtx or on Facebook at colinallredtx. Uh, we are building something really special here in North Texas. I think we have a great chance of returning a real representation to this area, being a part of what I think is a really necessary change here this fall for our country. I do believe this is the most important election of our lifetime uh, and that it's not going to be about you know, Democrats versus Republicans so much as it is going to be about standing up for our values as Americans and what we believe in and who we are. Absolutely. So thank you so much for coming on, Colin. 
I'm very excited to see you flip your district in November, and we'd love to have you on again once you are a member of Congress. Sure. Thanks so much, Jordan. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Now, to our listeners, as always, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, support us through our Patreon, check out our website, millennialpolitics.co, and stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening.